you are physically repulsive, intellectually retarded, you're morally reprehensible, vulgar, insensitive, selfish, stupid, you have no taste, a lousy sense of humor, and you smell. Shh, it's the milk flavors. Hey guys, I'm Chris. Hey everybody, I'm Robert. And we're the Film Flamers, bringing you another deep dive this month into The Witches of Eastwick. Yes, that's right. I have been trying to add this one to the docket since the podcast started, and I'm glad that we finally did. In fact, this is our first witch movie to talk about, right? No, Suspiria. (laughs) Oh my god, you're right. Our our second episode was about witches. (laughs) Good recall, though. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so this is our second <laughs> witch movie to talk about. <laughs> I promise that I'm an active participant in this podcast, although obviously not the podcast historian. We've had a couple hot takes, I think, that we've had witches in, you know, like Hansel and Gretel and stuff like that. But You're right. Okay, listeners, I'm sorry. Strike that comment directly from your ears, okay? I never said it. We've always talked about witches, and this is this movie's no different. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you have a point. We haven't had like a deep dive into, you know, uh, what you would call like, I, I don't call Suspiria like a straightforward witch movie, you know, compared to this one. Yeah. You know? And even this one, you know, as I'm sure we'll get into, is not even a straightforward witch movie either. So, I mean, yeah. there's lots to talk about in a, such a fluffy movie. So, but uh, let's get started. Yeah. We are against straightforward witch movies at this podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they either have to be around the way witches <laughs> or like just straight up fluff, you know? Come on. <laughs> So, The Witches of Eastwick is a 1987 American dark fantasy comedy film directed by none other than George Miller and starring Jack Nicholson alongside Cher, Michelle Pfeiffer, and Susan Sarandon as the eponymous witches. Also featured in the movie are Veronica Cartwright and Richard Jenkins, uh, who we actually talked about last month in The Cabin in the Woods. Carl Strucken of Adam's Family, Twin Peaks, and Dr. Sleep fame has a small but memorable role. The music for the film was composed and conducted by John Williams. The screenplay was written by Michael Christopher and is very, very loosely based on John Updike's 1984 novel of the same name. John Updike's last novel was a sequel to the novel titled The Widows of Eastwick, published in 2008. So before we start cherry-picking our way through the movie... These are the Witches of Eastwick. In the quiet town of Eastwick, where nothing ever changes, three beautiful women are about to discover powers they never dreamed they had. Who should we be looking for? He should be really handsome. Nice eyes. Now, the man of their dreams is here. Jane last we meet to stay for a spell who are you just your average horny little devil with the witches of eastwick we could do things you haven't any idea (laughs) you know what's going on up in that house she says she sees the devil here in eastwick if you were the devil would you come to eastwick oh i don't know Are you going to seduce me, too? Women. A mistake. Or did he do it to us on purpose? (laughs) Jack Nicholson. Cher. Susan Sarandon. Michelle Pfeiffer. 
The Witches of Eastwick. Hocus Pocus. Alexandra Medford, played by Cher, Jane Spofford, played by Susan Sarandon, and Suki Ridgemont, played by Michelle Pfeiffer, oh, are Suki. Th- <laughs> oh, Suki, Suki now. <laughs> are three dissatisfied women living in Eastwick, Rhode Island. Alex is a sculptor and a single mother to one daughter. Jane is a cellist and music teacher, unable to conceive. And Suki is a columnist at the local paper and mother to six daughters. All three friends have lost their husbands in some fashion. Alex's husband died, Jane's divorced her, and Suki's abandoned her. The women are unaware of the powers they possess, especially when they are together. One afternoon, during a very long and boring town celebration, the women conjure a sudden thunderstorm, forcing the celebration to end. Later that evening, while gathering for cocktails, the women discuss their ideal man as a stranger drives into town. The mysterious man, played by Jack Nicholson, is already causing trouble in Eastwick because he has purchased the historic Lennox Mansion. The arrival of the stranger excites the townsfolk, except for Felicia Alden, played by Veronica Cartwright, the deeply devout wife of newspaper editor Clyde, played by Richard Jenkins, Suki's boss. While fascinated with the man, the people of Eastwick cannot seem to remember his name, even though it's on the tip of their tongues. The man is in attendance of one of Jane's music recitals, but causes a commotion while sleeping and snoring very loudly. After the performance, Jane receives a bouquet of flowers with the initial D on the card. This sparks Suki's memory and reveals the name to be Daryl Van Horn. As the crowd buzzes with his name, Felicia mocks it, and Suki's bead necklace breaks. Felicia slips on the beads, falls down a flight of stairs, and breaks her leg. The following day, while on a bike ride, Alex finds herself drawn to the mansion and runs into Daryl, who invites her to lunch. Daryl makes some very insensitive and rude conversation and attempts to seduce Alex, who tells him off and turns to leave. Before she can leave the room, he speaks to her again, manipulating her emotions until she sleeps with him. Daryl then pays a visit to Jane, who is normally very shy and insecure. He tells her that he's a music lover and musician and wants to play with her. He praises her playing but then says that she can do better with more passion. He encourages her to play with reckless abandon until her cello catches fire and she passionately flings herself onto Daryl. Alex brings Suki to Daryl's mansion to meet him and they find a changed, more relaxed Jane already there. The group plays doubles tennis, but jealousy and tension causes anger amongst the friends. During the heated match, the women levitate a tennis ball and find that they can control its motion and speed. Later, the four dance in the grand hallway, and while laughing, the women levitate themselves over a pool before falling in after losing concentration. Daryl videos the women having a conversation about fears, where each woman describes what scares them the most. Alex sees a bed filled with snakes. Jane fears aging, and Suki fears sudden, agonizing pain. Felicia, meanwhile, is starting to break down. In the hospital for her leg, she tells her husband that she can feel something evil inside her. Her doctor chalks it up to bone marrow entering the bloodstream, but soon after, she has an outburst at church, calling into question the activities going on at Daryl's mansion. Soon the entire town is gossiping about the three friends. Jane is verbally accosted at a store, and Suki loses her job at the newspaper after it runs a story about Daryl, the women, and the property. Unsure what to do and angry at Felicia, the women at the mansion begin to discuss their disdain for her and eat cherries. They spit the pits into a large bowl as they discuss. 
At the same time across town, Felicia begins ranting to her husband of the evils in town and the mansion, calling Daryl the devil. Suddenly, she begins to vomit cherry pits throughout the living room, and while still raving, claims that the three women will bear him sons. Her husband Clyde can no longer take it. He beats her to death in the living room with a fireplace poker. After Felicia's death, and fearful of their powers, the women decide not to see Daryl and to avoid each other until things have quieted down. Upset by their abandonment, Daryl unleashes their worst fears upon them. Alex wakes up in a bed full of snakes, Jane begins rapidly aging, and Suki experiences severe pain, which lands her in the hospital, where she learns that she is pregnant. Alex and Jane share with her that they are as well. Alex confronts Daryl about Suki's pain, and he stops it when she agrees that she and the others will come back to him. But they have another plan. The women return to the mansion and spend the night with Daryl. The next morning, they ask him to go to town for bagels and ice cream. While he is gone and using his spellbook, Alex and the others make a voodoo doll out of wax and some of his hair. They begin to harm the doll, and in turn, Daryl, still in town, begins to feel the pain and is buffeted by strong winds. He runs inside a church to escape the winds and finds it full of a praying congregation. Realizing the source of his troubles, he begins ranting to the churchgoers about the women and women in general, cursing them until vomiting cherry pits just as Felicia did. He races home to punish the witches for their betrayal. Back at the mansion, the women clean up their mess just in case the spell didn't work, and in the process toss the doll around, causing Daryl to have some trouble on the drive home. Eventually he makes it but is starting to revert back to his true demonic form. Startled by his appearance, the witches try to flee, but Daryl forces a wind to blow them down the stairs and Jane to fall from a balcony. As she falls, Suki tells her to laugh, reminding her of how they levitated before. She stops falling just as she reaches the floor. They race toward the doll in the kitchen, but drop it and it breaks into pieces. There is a commotion outside as Daryl, now a huge, monstrous form, breaks into the kitchen window. The witches toss the doll parts into a fire, causing the monster to shrink and sending Daryl back from whence he came. Eighteen months later, the witches have all given birth to baby boys, and the families are all living in the mansion together. One afternoon, the babies are drawn into the study with its many TVs, and Daryl starts to appear on each of them. He beckons them to come to daddy, but the witches walk up from behind the children and turn off the TVs with the remote. Not today, Satan. <laughs> he was all like, come to daddy. Come give me a kiss. He wanted those little babies to go kiss that filthy ass TV monitor? My God. <laughs> this must be pre-COVID. <laughs> For real, I was watching all of those women in that supermarket scene with Susan Sarandon, and they were all just like huddled together around the cash register. I'm like, Six feet apart. <laughs> Social <laughs> distancing, bitches. <laughs> oh my, you can call her a whore outside where it's safer. <laughs> Jesus. But yeah, so that's the Witches of Eastwick, you know, roughly. So well, The Witches of Eastwick was originally set to be filmed in Little Compton, Rhode Island. But controversy erupted when the town's congregational church questioned whether or not it should be involved in the filming. So, production finally began in Massachusetts on July 14, 1986. The movie was filmed there over the course of six weeks in Cohasset and Boston. And other shots were filmed on sets built on the Warner backlot. The movie was widely released on June 12, 1987, along with Schwarzenegger classic Predator 
which opened at number one. The Witches of Eastwick was close behind at number two with almost $10 million its opening weekend. The film would go on to gross almost $64 million against a budget of $22 million, making it the ninth highest grossing movie that year. And as a side note, 1987 is a pretty good year for movies, right? So I was going through the the, the box office list for that year, right? Ranked. Mm-hmm. And I was like, holy shit, it's like all these movies that I love. And maybe because I was like eight years old in 1987 or whatever. But so here's just a list, right? Platoon, Fatal Attraction, The Untouchables, Three Men and a Baby, Lethal Weapon, Predator, Robocop, Crocodile Dundee, Dirty Dancing, Mannequin, Roxanne, Spaceballs, The Running Man, The Princess Bride, <laughs> Harry and the Hendersons, Little Shop of Fucking Horrors, Adventures in Babysitting, Hellraiser, Creepshow 2, and the best Star Trek movie of all time, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home. First of all, triggered. <laughs> the best Star Trek movie of all time is Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Thank uh, you very much. No. The Whales. And... Oh, please. <laughs> so second of all, 1986 was a good year too. Sharon Michelle Pfeiffer would say in an interview later that one of the best times during shooting was actually going to go see Aliens with Jack Nicholson. Oh my God. I bet that would have been a really fun movie experience. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine being one of the people in that movie theater? Like, oh my God, is that Cher? And Susan Sarandon and Jack Nicholson. Yeah. I mean them too, but <laughs> <laughs> queer just a little bit. <laughs> So The Witches of Eastwick has a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes based on 33 reviews. The audience score currently sits at 62%. The site's consensus reads, A wickedly funny tale of three witches and their duel with the devil, fueled by some delicious fantasy and arch-comedic performances. The Washington Post wrote that Hollywood pulls out all the stops here, including a reordering of John Updike's original book to give you one flashy and chock-full-of-surprises witches' tale. However, that reviewer felt that the last part of the movie spirals into ridiculousness, saying that the second half loses all of its magic and degenerates into bunk. Roger Ebert gave the film 3.5 out of 4 stars, acknowledging that the movie's climax is overdone, yet added that a lot of the time this movie plays like a plausible story about implausible people. Yeah, I can see that. Ruth Crawford wrote, This film includes many fantasy elements. By far the most fantastic of them is its depiction of a single mother of five. Well, if she was paying That's attention six, to six. Yeah. <laughs> who has to work for a living and still has plenty of free time and energy left to engage in wild adventures of sex and magic. If being a witch gives you the ability to do that, quite a few women I know would be very happy to sign up at the nearest coven. And they probably are. Yeah, so, I mean, <laughs> they probably need less than that. <laughs> <laughs> The film was nominated for a lot of awards, actually. So at the Academy Awards, it was nominated for Best Original Score and Best Sound. Um, however, it did win a Visual Effects Award at the BAFTAs. So it won Best Actor at the Saturn Awards for, of course, Jack Nicholson. But it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, Best Actress for Sarandon, Best Supporting Actress for Cartwright, and uh, Best Writing, Best Music, and Best Visual Effects, all nominated. Yeah, so lots of nominations at the Saturns. Yeah. Um, It has a longer lasting legacy. So in 2009, a TV series called Eastwick 
It was based on the movie and the novel, debuted on ABC. It lasted 13 episodes for being canceled. And there was also a small, like, stage musical that was written. Never made it to mm-hmm. Broadway, but it's played in like, other cities, you know. And I think there was also a series back in the uh, late 80s called The Witches of Eastwick that lasted a hot second. Yeah, there was a pilot and it never got picked up. So, but okay. I, I think that you can still watch that pilot somewhere on the internet. Yeah. So let's let's get into this a little bit. Have you... Have you read the original John Updike novel? I read the novel back when I was a teenager. Yeah. So okay. it was like the ninth or 10th grade, you know, because that was, you know, like I've talked about on this podcast before, I was hungry to get my hands on whatever horror I can. And that included books. And I read a hell of a lot more when I was younger than I do now. But yeah, so I, I read The Witches of Eastwick uh, just because I had seen the movie before, you know, many years before and wanted to read the book. And it is incredibly different. Yeah. Okay. So the main differences that I could spot were the film follows the basic structure, but there's several developments are dropped with the book being much darker in tone. Yeah. So the setting of both is Rhode Island, but the novel sets the time during the late 1960s. So in the novel, Daryl is more devil-like, less of an enabler and more of a selfish, perverse predator and an architect of mayhem. Also, the film omits a key episode in the book where Daryl unexpectedly marries a young, innocent girl named Ginny, and the jealous three witches magically cause her to die of cancer. Yeah. So none of the three witches get pregnant, and at the end, Daryl flees uh, the town with Jenny's younger brother, Chris, apparently his lover. So that's an interesting little missing tidbit there. Um, could have been, you know, problematic, but also could have been interesting to see that. Well, and I think that they were going for a lighter feel in this movie. I mean, they obviously wanted to make it a, co- a comedy and the book is very yeah. funny as I, re- as I remember, you know, but it's more of a like social commentary kind of funny satire wise. Um, so Jenny, the, the girl that gets cancer is actually the daughter of Felicia and Clyde in the novel. And Suki is sleeping with Clyde at the same time. Oh, geez. And so, and it, it, it make no mistake in the book, like Clyde kills his wife and then hangs himself. And the witches are a lot more amoral in it. You know, I, I remember like Jane, especially like making comments, especially after Felicia died, like saying that she deserved it. Cause she was such an uppity Bye, bitch. Felicia. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, it was a much, much darker in tone, but a very, very good book. You know, as I recall, I mean, Honestly, I mean, I like the book more than the movie, but we oftentimes say that about movies based on books. So That's true. I'd like to talk about George Miller for a little bit. He's like, for me, he's one of the most interesting directors in modern cinema. I mean, he's he just jumps genres like, like most directors almost never do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So he directed the he's probably most famous for the Mad Max series. And of course, he directed, you know, his part of the Twilight Zone movie, Lorenzo's Oil, also starring Susan Sarandon, Babe, <laughs> Babe and the Big uh, Pig in the City, <laughs> Happy Feet, and finally came back to the Mad Max uh, series with Mad Max Fury Road, which was, of course, nominated for 10 Oscars, winning six of them. Well, I mean, and Lorenzo's Oil was nominated for many, many Oscars, as was Babe. Babe was nominated for Best yeah. Picture at the Oscars. So this I man think is James Cromwell got like Best Supporting Actor or something. Yeah, he was too. nominated as well. So I mean, I mean, like George Miller is no like stranger when it comes to awards, right? And I love Lorenzo's Oil so much, and I don't yeah. know why, you know, but it, it's such a straightforward drama. But I think that Susan Sarandon is so good in that movie. It's just a, yeah. an excellent movie. Yeah. And d- did you ever see Mad Max Fury Road? Yes. Yes. Oh, Many love times that movie. I think like at least five times at this point. It's on a lot of uh, lists for like best films of that decade. I think, I mean, 
best films of the, the millennium or since the millennium started. It's a fantastic yeah. movie. Yeah. So yeah, George Miller, I mean, like he can do a lot and I really appreciate a director who can do that. You know, a sort of like, I'm just like, how do you go from happy feet to Mad Max Fury Road? You know, it's just like this man is like some kind of genius, I guess, you know, either that or he's very manic, right? He's like, Oh, I have all these sad movies. Now it's time to make babe. You yeah. Know? But it seems like he gets more and more Oscars, the older he gets, you know, and he was born in 45. So hopefully he'll, he's still got a few movies left in him. But I, I do wonder if he got share for this movie through Tina Turner, who worked with him on Mad Max beyond Thunderdome in the eighties. And uh, of course also did a, the music video tie in for 1985 for her. We don't need another hero. <laughs> I love that song. <laughs> and she's great in that movie too. So you know. I, I have not seen Thunderdome in a very long time. And people generally like working with him as a director, you know? So I'm wondering if, you know, that's part of it. I can imagine. Oh, I hope there's some good fun facts. I mean, I'm looking forward to that. So, of course, the elephant in the room here is this massive, amazing cast yes. for this movie, right? Uh, so Jack Nicholson expressed interest in playing the role of Daryl through his then-girlfriend, Angelica Houston, after hearing that the original actor for the role, Bill Murray, had Ooh. dropped out. Yeah. <laughs> so Houston was in the running for the role of Alexandria Medford and screen-tested opposite Michelle Pfeiffer, who had already been cast as Suki and Amy Madigan. A lot oh. of people who was uh, being considered for the role of Jane after giving a self-confessed terrible audition in which she struggled with the tough dialogue. Angelica Houston realized that she had lost the role and it was eventually offered to share. When she says tough dialogue, I mean, like, I can only assume that she's talking about that scene where he's trying to seduce her. I mean, that's like the, the longest like monologue that Cher has in the movie, right? I, he's talking most of the time. It, it's not until later in the bedroom where she has that string of insults for him. Right. Which is you excellent. Know? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, like insert that like little monologue here. You know what I mean? I think everyone should hear it. I think that's like Cher's moment in a, in a movie filled with Oscar moments. You know what I mean? Like people, they were really trying to give them their space to get their Academy Award nominations. Like everyone has their Oscar scene, you know? Mm -hmm. And that was hers clearly. So I wonder if that's like the scene that Angelica Houston was talking about, but it doesn't seem that tough, you know? Well, I don't know. She must've been doubly, you know, disappointed because of course that same year, you know, Cher just doing like Moonstruck and won an Oscar for that. (laughs) You know? So, (laughs) At this point in her career, Cher could, you know, you know, was at that height, I would say, of her acting career. Well, I mean, so with that being said, so let's talk about Cher in this movie, right? So how do you feel that she she was as an actress? You know, I'm I'm kind of, it's just, it, I feel like this must have been like a snowball effect. It's John Updike, it's George Miller, you know, they've got uh, some pretty big, big wig um, uh, producers at this point. Mm-hmm. They must have liked the book, you know, and then of course, as, as people like Jack Nicholson sign on, it's just like, you know, snowball effect as more and more names get, get attached. Right. And so that's why we have a movie here. I think with Cher and Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer and Veronica Cartwright and Jack Nicholson, you know, and I, I, I think that it all just kind of came together you know, with all these people being able to kind of just uh, get excited about the material. Yeah. I mean, and I guess I would agree. I I would think that like Michelle Pfeiffer, I don't know what she had been in prior to this. I mean, I know she'd been in movies. I mean, Scarface, obviously. Right. But Grease too. Grease too. I mean, she had to be like the the least known of all these actresses. Right. I think that's why she sort of gets 
a lower bill, at least in the credits, right? Uh, but Jack Nicholson gets billed above all yeah. these women. She had been in Grease 2 and Scarface and Lady Hawk, you know? Uh, so she was she was a household name, I would say, by that point. Uh, or close to it. So the Witches of Eastwick, I think, makes sense at that point. But yeah, of the three, I'd say she was the, the least. But I think they all did a pretty good job. I mean, uh, if I were to go through like all the actresses in this movie, and I, I would include Veronica Cartwright in that conversation too, but I mean, she's clearly a supporting actress, but I think that her part is very pivotal to the movie. Oh my God. Yeah, she is. She's amazing in this. She really... You know, has the like of all the acting in the movie, I think she has some of the most, you know, beyond Jack Nicholson's character, she has like some of the, you know, the heaviest hitting as far as acting. And I mean, so I, I think that she was sort of robbed of an Oscar nomination. I thought that her performance in this movie, and every time I watch it, I'm just floored by how good she is in this. I mean, like, she does crazy well, she does pious very well. And I mean, like, it's just such great acting from like looks on her face to, to movements and the way she holds herself and delivers her lines. And it's just like, just incredible. Well, I don't think it's her fault. I think it's the characterization, right? Because there's like some important stuff. I feel like that's not really explained or off screen um, as to why she's being that way. You know, she, it's a lot of gray area, which makes her character a little bit more muddy. And I really appreciate gray area in films, um, especially when it comes to characters, because it makes them more believable. Mm -hmm. But for someone like her, you know, when she, she, after she has this big diatribe in the, in the church about, you know, sin and, you know, you know, the demoralization of, you know, the town and everything else. And she goes, of all people, I can appreciate a good fuck. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's like, you know, there's some, <laughs> this, the character is not drawn as sharply as it could have, I think. And some of that is just, I think, lost in some translation of the book to try and make this a little bit more, you know, like John Williams score whimsical than the source material. And so I feel like, you know, there's some, compromises that were made with some characterizations to make this a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than it was really meant to be from the source material however i'm always jealous whenever i watch this movie because that, that scene in the church and you see her hands like gripping onto the pew and her her mouth is like forming the word and she finally stands up and she's like horse <laughs> <laughs> i remember watching that because i was like how would robert say this and he was like who are <laughs> Yeah, because she sounds like that. She sounds like she's going, who are? God, she says it's very similar to me. And I wish that I could be in that situation, maybe not in church, you know, but just like in a quiet area and just get up and just scream, who are? (laughs) (laughs) So jealous, Veronica. (laughs) I'm sure she had fun. But no, I mean, like, she's, she's fantastic in this movie, you know, and I think even more so than like the three main characters of the three witches in this. Yeah. Out of those three, I think that Cher does the most of the heavy lifting, but obviously I think her part was written for that. And I mean, in, yeah. the, in the book, she's a much bigger character. Um, Susan Sarandon has had a lot of time to hone her skills as an actress by the time she was doing this. And she was giving the much more interesting role of someone who changes, you know, from being very insecure to being wild, right? Well, She's like, but still not as fleshed out as Cher's or as interesting as Cher's character because Cher's the more cynical one, right? right. And she has some of the most interesting media dialogue of the three and it's interesting that you mentioned that because um susan sarandon was originally given that role really right Cher wanted the role that she ended up getting and susan sarandon didn't find out that she was switched until the day she showed up on set Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> 
fucking burn and she still went to the movies with them i mean yeah. god mm-hmm. i mean i mean it's good though i mean I think that she was good for that role. If I'm looking at Susan Sarandon playing Alex, like I don't, I don't see it, you know, but Susan Mm -hmm. Sarandon does a really good job of Jane. And I think having that kind of transformation is good because Susan Sarandon is good at that. She's good at changing her character halfway through the movie, i.e. like the Rocky horror picture show. Right. You know, she's, she plays those characters really, really well. And it's great. Um, I, I watched this movie two times uh, in preparation for the podcast. So now I've seen it a good handful of times, maybe 10 at this point. And I'm always like... That's more than a handful. Yeah. <laughs> you don't know my handful. Um, I'm always Ooh. like... <laughs> I, always I was want- taking a sip at that point, so please. <laughs> I always look at Michelle Pfeiffer and I'm like, so when... When did I think that Michelle Pfeiffer became a good actress? You know, so I'm trying to think back through all her career. I mean, because I I don't think that she's terrible in this movie. I no. think she's serviceable. You know, no, she's always but, good, right? Yeah, but she, you know, it's just it's her pick of roles. Like I didn't think that she was a great actress. I don't think until Deep End of the Ocean, right? Yeah. Oh, that's and a good movie then too. I was just blown away by her performance. And she's just like, I just, I was thinking about her in this. I was like, she's so young here, mm-hmm. you know, but obviously she has a level of professionalism and, you know, she can hit the ground running in any role she plays and she doesn't mind not being, you know, the head diva on set. She can play almost any role. I loved her in Batman Returns. She was amazing in that. And she really showed some range in that, I think, um, you know, and so She's she's been a lot in a lot of different genres over the years, and she's really proven herself to be a force. You know, yeah. I mean, because I'm out of those three women, which which I love them all. I mean, I can go through and pick out different movies for each of these actresses that I I love them in for different reasons, right? But I mean, Michelle Pfeiffer really does have a lot of genre work, probably a lot more than the other two do. So, and, and honestly, I can see any of these actresses in any of the others' roles in this film. Really, you could see Cher playing Suki. Yeah, I could, you know, because I've seen all the other films that they've been in, you know, and all the different roles that they've been. Cher is is kind of typecast as, you know, the the headstrong, you know, strong female character yeah. more than the others. Um, obviously, Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer have been a lot more versatile in their careers, but they've had a lot more of a career in acting than Cher has, you know. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I can see that Cher could have done it, but not wanted it, you know. Obviously, well- Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer are more versatile. And I mean, I think more often than Cher, Susan Sarandon and Michelle Pfeiffer have been cast as sex pots in their movies. I mean, like Catwoman, you know, I mean, it's a very sex pot kind of role and like in Scarface, right? And Susan Sarandon with Rocky Horror Picture Show, Bull Durham, right? They always play these very sexual-esque roles. And um, I mean, Cher's always sort of like the the level-headed, you know, friend or lead, you know, or right? the 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 tamed shrew or something, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we can't have a conversation about casting and acting in this movie and not talk about Jack Nicholson, the person who was billed over all three of these women when it was paid and still. Yeah, well, of course, but you know, he, they ended up like I was watching some interviews with them and the actresses seem to all really, really like him because he doesn't care. Like they would say in the church scene, you know, in any of those scenes where he has to act so over the top, he just doesn't care. He's, um, 
And it would be a mistake to think that he just shows up and does this thing that no, he does a huge amount of preparation with the script and that they had stayed up that his behest, they'd stayed up till six in the morning before one of their scenes going through all of the motivations and the the script and everything else. And that he has no compunctions whatsoever acting like an idiot in front of a huge amount of people, you know, and that he has no limitations. And so they really, really learned from him you know, of how to just be so open with the performance. And so they really, really appreciated him in that. And I've, I've heard good and bad things about him, you know, of course, uh, him and Veronica Cartwright were a thing uh, before this movie. And then because of this movie ended up together again for a brief stint after it, oh, really? uh, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. But, um, you know, at least in those interviews, um, they seem very positive on Jack Nicholson. And of course that anecdote where they go to the movies with him and see aliens, you know, you know, so and I mean, I I like him in this role. I think that he brings a lot of comedy to it, right? And also a lot of like dramatic bravada or whatever, you know, like that that scene where he's ironing his clothes and doing a very piss poor job and throwing shit around or whatever. Like that's clearly his Oscar moment, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, I mean, yeah, I think that he brings a lot to this movie, and I I can't really see anybody else playing that part. Right. I mean, I might be able to interchange some of these women a little bit, but I think that Jack Nicholson does a good job. I don't know why Sean Connery just popped into my head. (laughs) Really? (laughs) Bagels and ice cream. (laughs) What kind of ice cream do you have? I don't love in slices. <laughs> I'll just take the bread and the fish. I can, well, no, I just looked into somebody else that I don't even know. God. <laughs> I mean, I can't really do a Jack Nicholson, so. Yeah. So <sighs> let's talk a little bit about the themes in this this movie, because they're kind of, I feel like it's trying to be like a female empowerment story versus I don't think the original novel was really about that as much. Um you know, and I, I do think this film has something to say about female empowerment and female relationships in general, both positive and negative. I, I think as much as it is um, trying to prop up uh, women and, you know, their their power, um, it's also kind of an indictment in a way of, you know, some female relationships and infighting and um you know, like that scene in the store, you know, where the women are the ones that are pointing fingers and calling each other whores and, and everything else, or, um, you know, kind of turning on each other in a way with Veronica Cartwright's character and things like that. So it's, it's almost, um, it's almost telling a story of not only female empowerment, but that one of the main things, not just men like Jack Nicholson's huge diatribe about women as a curse in the church i think is is almost like the women are the the ones holding themselves back in their relationships not supporting each other but this might be a huge overread <laughs> in this film no i totally get it and i i mean like i i com- i'm right there with you i think that this movie is very female empowered empowering um in in more ways than just that i mean like obviously these women all the women who live in Eastwick are living in a town that is run by men. It's, it's a lot of patriarchy going on in this town, right? Mm. And a lot of religion. And and it's a small town. I mean, like there's one part, like one part in the movie where you see the sign. It says population like seven thousand, right? It's just a very small mm. town, and you get a lot of gossipy stuff like that. And I think that you know, if you're living in a puritanical kind of area and women aren't allowed to express themselves sexually then um yeah there's gonna be a lot of gossip and a lot of henpecking and things like that but this movie is very like 
living in a Me Too society right now, right? You can see a lot of things going on in this movie. Like when that guy was touching Susan Sarandon's ass while she was trying to like lead her like mm-hmm. students and in a band practice. And I was just like, my God, you know? And I think the movie really goes out of its way to show how men are have their fingers on these women at all times. Yeah, but it's it's also interesting that the the devil character is the one that kind of indicts them, you know, showing that, you know, they panic when they see a woman having any kind of power. Uh in in, in his words, because they can't maintain their heart ons or something. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they'll they'll tear her down whenever they get a chance, you know, uh if if she shows any kind of authority because they feel threatened. Yeah, because he's also sitting there talking to her during that lunch, right? And he was just like, she asked if he's married. She's like, are you married? And he was like, no, I don't like marriage. It's good for the man, bad for the woman. You know, I mean, he has a whole like whole list of things. And I mean, clearly yeah. he's tailoring his conversation to, to Alex at that particular moment, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think that deep down his character is a part of the problem too. He's well, just as much a part way. of the patriarchy as the other men in this particular town. Yeah. yeah. The, you can have as much freedom and power as you want, as long as you don't leave me, they leave him for like 24 hours or less. And he just goes ape shit. That's crazy. right. Yes. I mean, he goes to their homes and talks to them and leaves them, calls them on the phone. And then he gets home and like throws all their worst fears on them and then decides he's going to veg in front of the TV and like eat junk food, drink Pepsi and burn all his clothing with an iron because they left him. Right. <laughs> like it's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I totally get it. And it, the book has some like female empowerment to it as well but really it's just a comment to me at least in my read a comment on like society pointing your fingers at the way you want to live your life yeah it's a there's a little bit of muddiness here as far as it's like theme of female empowerment or female relationships and then like an indictment on on kind of both sexes in a way in different ways uh there's also some you know uh story tropes like uh, be careful what you wish for you know um temptation uh, via like forbidden fruit is a, is a theme. There's some biblical themes here, you know, yeah. a little bit on the nose. Um, no, I don't know that there's much to talk about there. It's not extremely deep. Um, well, I mean, it, it's very on the nose, at least the fruit part. Cause I mean, like they're always eating fruit in this movie. <laughs> there's yeah. fruit everywhere. Yeah. There's definitely so. a tie here to consumption of, you know, belief and relationship and connection and things like that and knowledge and power and, and, and stuff like that. And of course you see it, you know, going in and then you see it coming out, <laughs> you know, in the enemies. So well, I think a lot of that stuff, when you bring up like these, these themes of be careful what you wish for and temptation and forbidden fruit, right. This movie really goes out of its way to call its character certain things without actually saying the words. Right. Uh-huh. I mean, cause they're never once called witches in this movie, you know, like, uh daryl's character he says like he's sitting there talking to his dog when they're levitating over the pool he's like look look what they can do you know like these are more than human beings or something right but then they're never called witches Mm -hmm. and he never really is called the devil except by felicia and once by himself because he was saying he was a horny little Mm -hmm. devil right but as he's always feeding them fruit you know which is what the devil did in the bible and like he's always providing some sort of temptation and like wish granting or whatever Mm -hmm. so he says you know and so i mean yeah there's a lot of of that but it's the only way this movie does it you know i it's 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 super muddy in that way yeah right i would agree what are some of your 
favorite scenes in this movie? Uh, so my favorite scene is the the cherry vomiting scene or the cherry <laughs> scene. <laughs> Very evil dead of you. I just like from the, the I first saw this movie when I was about nine or ten. And uh, like that scene has always stuck with me, right? For multiple mm-hmm. reasons. A, because like that's the point in the movie that I really knew that they were witches and they were capable of doing something evil. Because up and just to that point, they were like manipulating a tennis ball and hitting it with their ass and like sort of like laughing and floating over a pool and ha 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 ha, you know? But in this particular scene, they're like eating these cherries and spinning these pits. And this woman is going on this diatribe and like vomiting the most realistic vomit that I have ever seen in a movie. Like normally vomit's very like green or yellow looking and it's very like meniscus. Right. But like in this particular movie, it's cherry pits and like super liquidy. And I'm like, that's what vomit looks like in real life. And I was like, this is fucking gross. And if we're going to talk about like, like Oscar scenes and movies or Oscar clips, right. That's Veronica Cartwright's right there, especially when she's like grabbing her skirt and pulling it up to her crotch. And she's just talking about like women and something wants to be inside me, inside me like a man, you know? And I was just like, yes, this woman's a fantastic actress. And I love that fucking scene so much. <laughs> There's something about barfing scenes that I just find so hilarious. I mean, we should do a top 10 at some point because like, I'm thinking about like stand by me's epic vomit scene, like, which yes. you almost can't beat. I'm thinking of like drag me to hell, you know, vomiting mm-hmm. the dentures and everything else. Yes. I'm thinking of like Evil Dead movies and, you know, like there's just so much gold out there to mine. <laughs> I'm going to add that to our top 10 list. I think we need to do that at some point. <laughs> top 10 vomit scenes. We should do it for Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, and let's not forget The Exorcist, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So. Mm-hmm. The, the split pea soup or whatever. <laughs> Well, what about you? What scenes do you like? Oh, I love the initial meeting of Cher and Jack Nicholson, you know, meeting Daryl for lunch, you know, with his whole diatribe and everything else, which I just thought was hilarious and interesting and weird. And you can see it on Cher's face. You know, she's reacting to all of this with just kind of like a smirk and like unbelieving, you know, yeah. <laughs> and finally you get her reaction to it, which is a big payoff. And it's just so it's so good. Uh, and then the final manipulation, emotional manipulation of her, which it kind of ends up being fairly believable based on, you know, she can see it in her face. Just fuck it, you know, and where she finally gives in despite her initial repulsion of him, you know, and it's just um, it's interesting to me that whole thing and i think that's kind of the the center and the heart of this movie is you know his whole thing and her reaction to it and then finally just kind of submitting with you know this is fun fuck it you know <laughs> well i mean because he really is like i know that he's manipulating her in that moment right but he's saying all the right things for that character right and she's so good in that particular scene too like she she gives him her her lines and is turning to walk out and like you know you should be applauding by them she's like yeah you know like you're right because he's sort of a gross looking man you know yeah i mean like i think that his character is supposed to look like somebody you wouldn't want to sleep with and yet you know they all do but when he's sitting there talking to her and very close to her face almost whispering in her ear and you can see the change in her face from like no to acceptance and like just the matter of those lines. And you're right. I think that that entire lunch scene is, is fantastic, especially the moments that are in the bedroom. I mean, it's funny mm-hmm. and well acted and just well written. And I mean, incredible. Well, I think the characterization of the devil in this movie is kind of interesting to me. And 
because he's I, I almost wonder if he's not actually the devil like he is an aspect of the devil right because they didn't ask for the devil to come they, they were kind of talking about all three of their different wants of an ideal man and it's almost like a mashup right good looking but actually not good looking they want a short dick no but they want a long dick you know <laughs> you know and so he ends up being kind of this weird warped funhouse mirror version of a man you know, and they're like, oh, and later on, it's just like this call out. Oh, his dick actually curves the wrong way. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, So he's like this, you know, mashup and, you know, kind of jack of all trades, but master of none because he's just not great at anything like looking or acting, the, you know, a certain way or anything else. He's like literally this this mashup funhouse mirror version of what they each wanted in a different way. And so it's, uh, it was interesting that they, they portrayed that with Jack Nicholson. Cause like, I almost can't imagine anyone else kind of pulling that portrayal off. Yeah. So they sort of wanted a dad bod with an average dick. Right? It's like, <laughs> like, hey, you know, who doesn't want that? I mean, come on. <laughs> confident, but not self-absorbed, honest, but not like to a fault. And like just all this weird stuff that they said to correct each other when they were describing who this man would be. It's like a fucking Alanis Morissette song. I don't <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Mm. So I, I also really, I, you know, obviously a memorable scene is the tennis scene. You know, obviously, you've already mentioned barfing in church, which seems to be a major theme. Yeah. Um, you know, both he does it and Veronica Cartwright's character does it. And, of course, the final exorcism is is a major scene that I remember thinking, is that CGI, like the gigantic devil? And no, I think it was like that stop motion, but they had, they were shaking the camera. He knows how to do effects in a certain way to make them look more realistic than they would normally be. So it ends up being a really interesting and effective you know, final scene, seeing him as a gigantic, disgusting, demonic, you know, creature that is a huge, real, very real threat to them. Yeah, well, and you're right. I mean, so like, I know that reviewer said that the whole movie like sort of devolves into ridiculousness at that point, but I kind of like the ending to this movie, right? Because I think that these women have finally realized what their powers are and they don't need to have him around to do that, right? That they are, they are masters of their own craft at this particular point. And all they need is the book that he has to really like cement it and get get together and do what they need to do. And they never wanted to hurt him, really. They just wanted him to go away. You know, yeah. they wanted their lives back or, you know, at least some sort of semblance of their life. Right. And so when you get to these points where he's like that monstrous thing and then that little tiny, sad looking Jack Nicholson faced imp thing in the window or whatever before he disappears <laughs> into a blip. Right. Like, I kind of like that. I mean, those things are both like you know, a little scary and then a little funny at the same time, you know, and that's how I like a lot of my horror movies. Well, they had to double down on, on the tone that they finally ends up with, which was, you know, whimsy, Yeah, you know, tongue in cheek, whimsy, dark comedy. And so they just kind of went for it. But I mean, there are some moments, especially at the end of this movie, when it really starts to get into some horror adjacent territory. Right. So like when he's driving back from, town and they're tormenting him with the doll and he's going through all those wacky hijinks in, in the car like it's including like being like hung out the outside face near the tire and he finally gets back and you realize that he's starting to like change into something else and he looks like full-on crazy monster like it's like a monstrous version of his shining character with like you know his toes coming out of his shoes and things like that i mean that's when the movie really starts to hit the horror adjacency that was kind of lacking throughout most of the rest of the movie, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
I was thinking going through this, I was like, is this even a horror movie? And it does. I mean, it gets it gets more and more and more close, you know, uh, to horror adjacency as it as it goes on, uh, clinching it, I would say, in the end. But you know, as it starts, I would say it's it's almost just a pure direct, you know, uh, dark comedy. And I'm sure we'll be talking about that later on in the episode as well. So save final thoughts for that. Yeah. Uh, I do have some issues with this movie and please forgive me people, especially if you have a nostalgia boner for this one. Um, I feel like there seems to be some missing scenes or pieces of the story. And I'm wondering if like, as with films like the hunger also starring, uh, Oh my gosh, I almost said Sigourney Weaver also starring (laughs) Susan Sarandon, either the filmmakers or audiences were generally like familiar with the original material and, and could fill in the blanks, you know, but judging from the major differences with the material, I want to say no. Right. So I feel like their underwhelming, almost passive reaction to magic, like in the tennis court, the storm they cause at the beginning of the film opens this up for conversation. Like, what did we just do or did we do it? But then they never have any kind of eureka moment. They never actually talk about it. And it's just like this blase thing that's happening. And I feel like there's like some missing dialogue or scenes here. And I know that there's multiple endings to this film that were shot. And I feel like some mistakes might've been made in in editing because there's just some like blank spots. Like it's implied that Daryl gave them all he had, like, but all I can tell is that he gave them sex and kind of an awesome mansion to stay at. Right. Like what was he actually doing for them? It's never really stated, but it's stated that it's a lot. So I, I don't know. Maybe they were blaming him for their their magic, like thinking that it was coming from him. I don't know. It's not explained. Um, I feel like Veronica Cartwright's off-screen death, like I didn't understand it at all until Robert's synopsis. <laughs> like I didn't know what happened. They just said she died. And it doesn't show it. It doesn't explain it. They don't talk about it. And I feel like her character is so good that she deserved more of an explanation, more of like an end cap to that, you know, and it's just not there. Uh, Finding the book at the end of the movie for their exorcism that they do with the voodoo doll, the, you know, I feel like they knew exactly who and what he was in order to, to know, to go to that book. None of that is explained. Um, You know, any kind of questioning that they might've had about that, you know, um, the major off-screen revelations of their abilities, generally like what's going on, what Veronica Cartwright was suffering from, what her supernatural role was. Was she supposed to be, you know, some sort of antithesis to Jack Nicholson's? You know, was she kind of transforming into a role of her own? I don't know. Like who exactly Daryl is would have helped, you know, an emotional journey for the women and the audience, I think, to understand. Uh, instead, we have these characters just kind of taken through the story, like strangely passively like things are just happening around them and they don't really seem to care how or why so i feel like there's some key scenes or exposition or something kind of missing in multiple elements for this movie and it it just seemed almost jarring to me even though i really enjoyed the film and coming from someone who has a definite nostalgia boner for this movie right i mean i've i've always loved it since i saw it the very first time you know but the more i watched it growing up you know, and becoming a more discerning film viewer, you're right. There's a lot missing from this movie. And a, particularly on this rewatch, I was starting to like, there are some pieces missing mm-hmm. to this puzzle, right? Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of it is boiled down to tone. I think that they made a whole movie and they were like, okay, now what do we want this to be? You know, do we want this to be very comedic? Do we want this to be more of a fantasy movie? Do we want this to be more of a horror movie? How are we going to market this? And who are we going to market this to? And now we have to cut the movie to fit that, right? 
Yeah, it almost seems like it was having um, some sort of crisis of you know a faith or crisis of of what it wanted to be, you know. And this movie went on to make a lot of money, and I think that it made a lot of money because of the names of the people who were in the movie, right? I think that this movie could have been a lot bigger, both in box office and accolades and in remembrance over time, if they had just committed themselves to a better film editing wise. Yeah. I think that they had like really said, this is the tone we're going for. And we're going for this really like dark fantasy kind of a movie and downplayed some of the comedy and really explained some of the things that you can't do in a comedy, right? If you're going to, if you're going to market this movie as a, 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 like a, a belt buster comedy you can't have a man murdering his wife in the living room right yeah right after she vomits up all these cherry pits i'm surprised that they even kept a lot of that in you know except that vomiting is kind of funny and so yeah i mean i i completely agree with everything that you just said and i think that i mean especially as far as their witchcraft goes I have never seen a movie with witches where they discover they have powers and they are so blasé about it. You know, when they're playing tennis and they're manipulating that ball and Susan Sarandon is like tying her shoe and she's like holding the ball there and she gets up and bends over and like pats it with her ass. And I was just like, okay. I was like, you do know, do you know what you're doing? Like if, if I could suddenly stop a tennis ball from moving, I would be flabbergasted, yeah. right? And so it's just not it's not realistic as a witch movie to me, you it, know? But it, it tries to go for this whimsical tone by having them be so passive to it, you know? And I, I just, I can't help but think of a movie that just came out like less than a year later um, that really nailed its tone as a supernatural dark comedy, and that's Beetlejuice, right? They yes. nailed that tone. And mm-hmm. I feel like if they had just been a little bit more brave and either gone full on, you know, dark supernatural drama or full on dark comedy, they, this, this movie would have a little bit more of, you know, sharpness to it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and that's what it is. I mean, like they, they wanted to make money. They probably had to make money to pay some of the people in this movie, right? They have to have a return on investment or at least a little bit. And they wanted, you know, Americans to go and see it. And I mean, let's face it, like in the 80s, especially like, you know, 87, 88, 86, that that mid 80 time when a lot of like the religious right was out there. We had like Anita Bryan out there doing her thing. Right. And a lot of people were really turning to religion. You don't want to have a movie that's about witchcraft and the devil and say those things out loud and make it a serious film. They had to make it a comedy. You know, and they had to make it more whimsical than dark. And I mean, I see why they did all these things. I would like to see a director's cut of this film for sure. Yeah. And I oftentimes think about what it would be like if it were remade. Oh, yeah. You know, like, do do they go the direction of being more friendly to the novel or more faithful to it? Or do they do a full remake of the movie? Either way, I'd be happy with it. I almost want to see like a Tim Burton version of this, you know, yes. or, you know, conversely, like a David Fincher version, you know, like, Ooh. like either way in either direction. <laughs> I mean, I would like to see what Tim Burton would do with this. I think he could, I think he could do well, you know, and I think he would really hit that tone a lot better than they achieved in this particular movie. I don't think that it's the fault of George Miller. I don't think it's the fault of any of the cast. I think they all no. did very good jobs. It really just came down to somebody in a studio saying like, no, this is the movie we have no, to have. I know whose fault it is. And we're yeah. about to get into it with our fun facts. <laughs> oh shit. Okay. I'm ready. So lay it on me. Okay. 
So according to George Miller, producer John Peters suddenly decided he wanted aliens to appear in the movie, even though it didn't make sense with the story. Miller what? thinks that <laughs> Miller thinks that Peters was influenced by the box office success of Aliens from, of course, 1986. He even showed up one day on set with a stuntman dressed as an alien and told Miller to put him in a scene, any scene. Miller and Jack Nicholson then left the set until Peters gave up on this fixation. That's fucking stupid. So I don't know if you recall an anecdote anecdote by um from Kevin Smith, of course, of Jay and Silent Bob fame. It's in Clerks okay. and et cetera. So he was gonna do a Superman movie, and so John Peters was behind that. He, of course, John Peters is behind the entire Superman franchise. So every basically every Superman movie that's come out since the 70s, essentially, John Peters is has something to do with, including Man of Steel. And uh, so he wanted, you know, this giant movie with like a giant robotic spider and, you know, like and everything else. And it was just like batshit crazy. And, you know, Kevin Smith was like, I have to walk away. I'm not going to do this like everything else. And of course, that movie became Wild Wild West, you know. (laughs) Right. So, yeah, John Peters is just kind of wacky and just has these whims and is hard to work with, I've heard. Um, But we'll get back to him a little bit later. So in an interview with Australian magazine Cinema Papers in the early 1990s, director George Miller revealed that the shoot had been extremely difficult because he was initially unfamiliar with Hollywood-style communication. So in a meeting to discuss ways to reduce the budget, Miller volunteered to like give up his trailer because he was always needed on the set and had no time to use it anyway. So the studio concluded that he was a pushover, so they began to interview with a production request. If he had asked for 50 extras, the studio would give him a dozen. If he asked for two cameras, they would provide only one Miller decided to fight fire with fire and finally refused to shoot each scene until his production demands were met. The studio responded by looking for a new director, like just to replace him, but were prevented. So by Jack Nicholson who supported Miller and vowed to walk off the production if he was replaced. Oh, and they certainly couldn't lose him. My God. Yeah. So Jack Nicholson kind of saved the day for him, which is, which is great. Um, Jesus, that's ridiculous, though. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm starting to piece together like the problems with this movie. So yeah, continue. So the fights with the studio, like you know, also having to do with like the weird, wacky whimsy of John Peters as a producer on the set every day, must have Jesus. just been insane. Um, you know, and of course, um, the film was was you know shot in the town of Cohasset, uh, Massachusetts. Uh, it used for Eastwick, which is actually about 40 minutes from where I'm sitting currently. Which one? Eastwick or Cohasset? A uh, Cohasset. And the Eastwick doesn't make, doesn't, isn't real. Cohasset was what? used as Eastwick. There's not a real Eastwick? No. <laughs> no, the town of Cohasset, Massachusetts and parts of Boston were used for, for Eastwick. I just assumed there was an Eastwick, Rhode mm-hmm. Island for real. But no. I mean, so okay. yeah, 40 minutes from where I'm sitting. Um, it was also the home of source novelist John Updike. Oh, so well, I need to go there when I visit Massachusetts. Yeah, you, we have lots of places like Salem. You know, <laughs> there's many, many places in uh, Massachusetts that were used for you know Northeast um, movies like this. So anyway, uh, the composer, of course, John Williams' own whistling was dubbed in over Jack Nicholson's for the scene at the ice cream counter. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. So John Williams. I have to stop you for one second because we just had an entire conversation about this movie and didn't talk about John Williams' score, not one fucking bit. <laughs> but I mean, I have to just add in that, you know, I, I love the score. Like Chris has many, many, many film scores that he likes and I have a good handful and obviously my handful is kind of big sometimes, but 
I love the score. For no, it was movie. on your top so, 10 so much. Um, yes. scores for horror films. And, uh, you know, I agree. Although, strangely, in my head, whenever I think of the score, I start, I start hearing the theme from Hook, <laughs> which came out a couple of years later from John Williams. I don't know I don't why. Because I know that score well enough. Oh, yeah. The Hook score is incredibly whimsical. You know, it, I'd say it's the closest of all John Williams score to this one, you know, and they came out with I'm, the same, you know, five or eight year period if i'm feeling sad sometimes i will just turn on the ed- the end credits score <laughs> to the witches of eastwick and just listen to it all the way through because yeah. that makes me happy every time that i hear it so, <laughs> yeah we, well done john williams yeah we love john williams um this is a particularly interesting score of his you know very you know i love how like dark and yet like kind of lighthearted it is and whimsical i, I keep saying that word but i mean that's what yeah, it is it's it's very like Danny Elfman esque, you know. I mean, like it's almost like if you were if you were to listen to this score, I would never originally say that it's John Williams if I didn't know it. I'd be like, oh, it's Danny Elfman, right? Mm. But no, wrong. It's John Williams. So bravo. Yeah, and that's actually interesting that you mentioned that because I'm wondering if uh, Danny Elfman kind of looked at the score for when he did Beetlejuice. I'm gonna say probably yes. So. Anyway, uh, Industrial Light and Magic was hired to animate the tennis ball as it violates the laws of physics in the tennis match. However, when it turned out that three main actresses were not very proficient tennis players, the effects <laughs> company saw their workload doubled as they were asked to create the ball for the entire sequence, <laughs> with the exception of some close-ups. So the entire tennis sequence uh, has a fake ball. Wait, so they, they couldn't even like hit the ball back and forth, so no. they have to like do that? Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, that's funny. <laughs> they did a good job though. Like some of the effects with this film, like yeah, industrial light I, and magic. I mean, you can sort of tell that it's, you know, like early CGI or early something when yeah. the ball's like just hanging there in motion. Mm-hmm. But I would have never known that they did just the ball back and forth during the initial like game volley. Yeah. That's funny. Invisible effects are some of the best ones. Yeah, I love it. I love it. So my last one. While getting into bed with a mountain of snakes. Cher famously quipped, which one of these is John Peters? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, bringing us back home to, of course, one of the major problems on the set, which apparently was this guy was an annoying asshole. Um, And of course, again, John Peters is a a famous producer behind, of course, the entire Superman series. Clue, of all things, the two most recent A Star is Born movies. Uh, the color purple batman batman returns wild wild west all those you know he has had a hand in as a producer so i mean i love a lot of his movies you know maybe some of the wackier elements of them are because of john peters you know behind the scenes but you know apparently sometimes he could be really really wacky and weird to work with so i'd kind of like to know more about him yeah his behind the scenes antics you know so Okay, but those are great, really. I enjoyed a lot of those. Um, But we have some questions to answer, like we ask for every movie that we cover here at the Film Flamers. And the first one is, is The Witches of Eastwick a horror movie? That's a difficult question to answer. We've talked a little bit about this already. Um, You know, I think by the end, it becomes very horror adjacent. Um, You know, if the whole movie was like the last, you know, fourth of it, you know, I would say, yes, definitely a horror movie. But, um, you know, I can't ignore the first, you know, three fourths where there are some horror elements, you know, but mostly in the through the lens of a of a comedy, you know, so I, I can't even say this is a horror comedy. You know, I do like how it's kind of framed, you know, when we first brought up the film, which is that it is a dark fantasy comedy. Right. And, um, 
you know, with horror elements. So this firmly, I think, fits into our what we call in, you know, this podcast, the the horror adjacent film. You know, this is definitely horror adjacent. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I would say horror adjacent only because of the end. Right. I think that they really don't deal with their witchcraft at all until the end of this movie. A, a large chunk of it is just about like the women discovering themselves on like a sexual level or like rediscovering themselves after losing their husbands and things like that. And I mean, if you want to look at it as a horror in real life situation of people in a town, like gossiping about you behind your back and whatnot, and what it's like to live in that ostracized environment. Um, yeah, but that's kind of stretching it. So I think for the first time in Film Flamers history, I'm going to say that, no, the movie that we're covering today is not a horror film. Not explicitly, but, so. you know, it's the perfect film to talk about as far as like what genre is to begin with. I remember seeing an interview with these actresses and kind of describing what is this film? How would you describe it as far as genre? And none of them could do it, really. And they say it kind yeah. of defies that. And it doesn't need to because at the end of the day, genres are words, right? And And basically to describe what a feeling or a tone is. And, you know, we've already had kind of some discussion about how we wish this, this film had kind of nailed more of a specific tone than it does, but does it at the end of the day need to like, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like this film, if you were just to, to say some of the things that happen, you know, like the barfing and like some of the, the deaths and some of the things that happen, the supernatural elements and Satan and everything else, you would say you could write it in such a way that this looks like a complete 100% horror movie, right? But the tone is not there to support that. And so we're forced to kind of give it other words, supernatural, dark comedy, drama, you know, <laughs> like it's, it doesn't in the end of the day matter. It has so many horror elements that, you know, it, we could definitely talk about it on a horror podcast, but it's almost unimportant to label it as such, I think, you know, so it's kind of brings that point home that horror adjacency, you know, is, um, you know, just a tool we use to describe something that defies expectation in a way. And I mean, and I agree with everything you just said. And like, I, I think this movie is very, very horror adjacent, especially at the end when we get some of these like monster effects and things like that. Or when these women finally discover the powers that they have, you know, um, I just, I, you know, I, I have an easier time calling the bodyguard a horror movie. Than this <laughs> I was one, just thinking right? that too, because it's more of a straightforward thriller, you know, which right. is kind of Venn diagrammed into the horror genre itself anyway. And I'm not saying that this movie doesn't lend itself to a horror podcast, especially ours, right? Because we so very easily talk about things that are horror adjacent, right? I have no problems talking about The Witches of Eastwick as a horror movie on a horror podcast, right? But, um, I mean, at the end of the day, I have to really just say it's horror adjacent, you know, at best. Mm -hmm. And it's still a movie that I like very, very much for all of its fantasy and dark fantasy qualities, right? But, um, I mean, I think maybe I saw a lot of a lot more horror in it when I was younger, right? You know? And as you get older, you sort of, like, change change your idea of what the movie's about. Yeah. So, so uh, secondly, and um, I'm sure we all know the answer to this one, so were you scared while watching The Witches of Eastwood? No. No. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, I'm not even quite sure I was scared as a kid watching <laughs> this movie. So, no. um, so out of five stars, what would you rate The Witches of Eastwood? I give it a very loving three and a half. I'm right there with you. I think there was a time in my life that I would have given this a four star, right? Mm -hmm. But I think that, I mean, having watched it now as an adult um, a couple times, I would have to say that three and a half is best because there are some problems with this movie. 
And and a lot of it has to do with editing, like we talked about. And I would love to see what they would do with it as a, a larger store. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I, I can't go any higher than three and a half stars. Yeah. But we still wholeheartedly recommend this watch. So don't oh, yeah. let that hold I you mean, back. Even though three and a half me, is a good rating. So I, out of five, especially, yeah, it's real close to four. So I mean, I love this movie. I think it's fun, and it's a really good like showcase for all these actors. So that's worth the watch alone. Yeah. Uh, but finally, who is the hottest guy in The Witches of Eastwick? You know, I, I just can't answer this question. I almost want to. I, I almost want to say Richard Jenkins. <laughs> Or I know, but not even. Yeah, you know, he looks so average McPlain rap in this movie. He looks so much more. I don't know. Like he really aged well. Like when we finally see him in Lake Cabin in in the woods. Um, you know, I was just thinking that last night when I was watching this movie again. I was just like, wow, he really aged well. Like he looks so much better now yeah. than he did in this particular. He movie. looks much more distinct now. You know, and as we get older, we look more and more and more like ourselves. I think you know is what some people say. Mm-hmm. And he just he just aged into himself really really well. Um, I almost also want to say Carl Strucken, you know, it looks in some, in some scenes, he just looks so young that I'm, you know, compared to what, what I'm seeing with him before they always give him gray hair and everything else. But yeah, he was young in this movie, you know, and I, I think in a different light, he could have been attractive, but there is no man in this movie. That's very attractive. <laughs> like, no, there's not. I know. Cause I was watching this last night. I was trying to pick my answer and I was like, none, you know, yeah. like I can't. I just can't, I can't pick an answer, you know, like, I mean, all the, I mean, all the men in this movie are like supposed to be unattractive in their own ways, yeah. For in their own ways, you know, like that's the way that we're supposed to see them and it works, you know, cause I don't find any of them physically attractive. I don't really find any of them like emotionally or like mentally attractive. And I'm just like, I just, all the male characters in this movie are just bad. But they're almost all you know? stereotypes in, in a way too. Right. Because yeah. Jack Nicholson is like the fun, you know, but dark, bad, bad boy, you know, that, that some people go for. And then you've got like the, Oh, I hate to use this word kind of like the cuck, you know, <laughs> <laughs> what Clyde? Yeah, yeah. In um, in Richard Jenkins' role as Veronica's, you know, Cartwright's husband and uh, Felicia's husband, and then you've kind of got you know the the asshole, which is you know Susan Randa's boss at the school, you know, who does that speech at the beginning of the movie, you know, and so it's like everyone is a different kind of caricature of what is wrong with, <laughs> with some of the, you know, male characters uh, or the male personality in, in general, that's been characterized in so many different movies and stories, you know, over time, you know, so they're all kind of their own, you know, stereotypes, archetypes, you know, which are all not great. <laughs> they're not attractive. So this movie is just not a great example of trying to pick like a hottest guy. <laughs> at all i know you're right it's just it's impossible so we're just gonna have to leave that question unanswered or just answer it by saying there isn't one i mean they couldn't even give us like a hot pool boy or something i know i mean like they were in that store where they were calling her like slut and shit they couldn't have like a hot bag boy or something i mean like come on no and i think that was done purposefully you know i think that yeah yeah there's no man in this movie except for jack nicholson that kind of pulls focus from the women Mm -hmm. you know so and that's good i mean I mean, like, 
in a time when women were, you know, struggling to find good roles or at least get like build over men and things like that. I think that, you know, it's good to make a movie where the men don't pull focus from all these female characters and it's good to have a female driven film. Yeah. And all of these actresses would go on to have very female empowered roles. You know, I feel like, um, you know, there's lots for Michelle Pfeiffer and her catalog. I don't know that Catwoman is a great example of that, but you know, I would say so. I, you know, I think that it's definitely, you know, a singular performance and character that tries to, you know, get her power back, you know, from absolute, you know, desolation. And then of course, Cher has gone on to do amazing things um, in roles and stuff. I'm thinking like if these walls could talk and, and some other roles that she's mm-hmm. had. And of course, since Miranda would go on to play like Thelma and Louise, you know? So, yep. I mean, these, these characters, I think she of all of them have had like the most female empowered. Oh, sure. In I love her in the client right? and you know, a lot of other movies, and but dead man walking and things. Mm-hmm. I mean, like she's just great. So they, this was kind of a stepping stone, you know, if they didn't already have it in their careers, which many of them did, but for them to go on and do even more female empowered roles that were even more meaningful in a multitude of ways. Well, it's good. I'm glad that we turned a question about who's the hottest guy into like female <laughs> empowerment in film. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's great. I love that makes me feel really good inside actually. So. Yeah. <laughs> Well, guys, I think that just about wraps up our conversation on the Witches of Eastwick. So uh, let us know what you think about this movie and our discussion about it. You can do that on social media. You can find us at the Film Flamers on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and even Letterboxd now. And you can email us at tiredqueens at filmflamers.com, or you can call us on our hotline and let us know exactly what you thought of this film or anything else we discuss at 972-666-7733. Leave your voicemail and we'll play it on the air on our next Shooting the Flames and respond to it. On Shooting the Flames, we also like to mention reviews. So if you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, go ahead and give us a five-star review. Leave us a little snippet about why you like us and we'll read it on that episode as well. And we like to call out our new patrons. So head over to patreon.com slash thefilmflamers. We can check out all of our bonus content and get early access to episodes sometimes a week or two in advance for as little as two dollars we've got 45 bonus episodes over there right now so you've got quite the backlog to go through check those out i'm sure there's a lot of gold for you to mine there and about to be 46 and we also have more episodes coming out for you in may on our regular feed we're gonna have a hot take of the movie the lodge which is coming out on vod very shortly at the time of this recording and this is also another double deep dive month where we will be discussing the ghost and the darkness i can't remember if i've seen this movie or not i'm gonna go with no so it's gonna be a first watch for me i think (laughs) at least i'm counting it as such yeah Yeah. well i'm excited i'm excited to talk about this one because i feel like it's uh kind of unsung and underappreciated so i don't know i haven't seen it in a long time but there's uh some interesting aspects of the film that i'm really excited to talk about so stay tuned it's good we're doing a lot of horror adjacency here in may oh i don't know if this one's horror adjacent (laughs) Oh, good. All right. Now you're teasing it too much. Okay. <laughs> I'll put it back in my pants. Well, guy, <laughs> you're a handful. <laughs> Damn it. Again, I had a drink in my mouth. I spit out on my keyboard. Guys, as always, we appreciate all the listens and all the comments and questions. We really appreciate all of you guys. So until then, we're going to head off and um, eat some cherries. <laughs> And spit them out. (laughs) And spit them out. (laughs) Okay, y'all. 
Sweet dreams. I really wish now that I had like committed Cher's little retort to him to memory. I've seen this movie enough. I should should know, but you know she's just like you're disgusting. Or no, there is an animatronic out there of Veronica Cartwright that they used in the film, and test audiences thought it was too disturbing. And what she does is thrashes around and throws up all the cherry seeds, and I want that for Halloween on my front porch. Are you serious? Yes. <laughs> Where the hell was that? Your fun facts. <laughs> okay. You can build it. If you build it, they will come. Yes. But you have to have candy and shit. So. 